I'm Alan Wardus, and you're listening to Think Radio. I think the press ought to get together, start a really smart Madison Avenue campaign, and said, this is what the press does, this is how we do it, and this is why it's important. I don't think we should go down, lying down. That's from my conversation with Patrick Pexton, veteran journalist and former ombudsman for The Washington Post. These days, he reports on cybersecurity and emerging artificial intelligence for CQ Roll Call. That's an exclusive publication aimed at keeping members of Congress informed about vital issues. Stay tuned for another great conversation on Think Radio. Think Radio is supported by the Gunnison Country Times, Gunnison's locally owned hometown newspaper, and by listeners like you. To find out how you can become a Think Radio supporter, visit kbut.org. Patrick, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. I really appreciate your time. Yes, no problem. I am fascinated by your role at uh, CQ Roll Call because cyber security, artificial intelligence, all of these things that just 10 years ago really were the realm of science fiction. Here you are doing this for real. You've got to go out there and find out actually what's going on in the world and and make that information available to decision makers. Tell me about that transition. I mean, you've been a a journalist in a variety of roles, including just small town newspaper work. And now here you are at the cutting edge of really the future of society, some would say. What's that like? Well, it came about because I had a temporary job with CQ Roll Call filling in for another editor doing defense and foreign affairs editing, which I've done for many years. And they were looking around for new products. And I was reading a lot about cybersecurity and the problems the government was having, plus the election in 2016, and looking at all the the centers of artificial intelligence with people studying it and looking at it very closely. Companies are investing in it. Uh, and looking at the cryptocurrencies. How does that work exactly? Uh, what does this mean for society going forward? And, and so I pitched to uh, our president, we got to do this newsletter on cybersecurity. And they said, great idea. And we launched it in the last November 8th. It's a topic that is on everyone's mind. What I find so fascinating is it's a topic that never stands still. Uh Every week there's something new, some new development, some new application. I mean, we're hearing now that long-haul trucks are going to be automated, no drivers necessary. I mean, those sort of things just sound so foreign to most people. How do you keep up? It is hard to keep up. There's just uh, two of us right now doing this, and we both do everything. Uh, So it is a little hard to keep up, but we narrow our focus to what do decision makers need to know about this stuff? How much of this is being adapted by government? Isn't government going to be in a place to use this? Or is it corporations who are really going to be on the forefront? Corporations will be on the forefront, but the government will need to understand this. They may need to regulate it. They may need to divert it into certain directions. So we're really writing for policymakers and what they need to know. And what have you concluded? Uh, They need to know that this is coming. It's coming very quickly. Uh, most members of Congress, which is what we cover, are badly informed on this topic. It is surprising how behind the knowledge Congress is of these fields. Why is that, do you think? Congress has always been a little bit of a lagging indicator uh, in terms of its ability to adopt and uh, predict where policy is going, where these kind of technologies are going. Back in the 80s and 90s, 
there was something called the Office of Technology Assessment, which was a branch of the Congress, which was very innovative, very ahead of its time. And then when Newt Gingrich came in, he killed it. It was a wonderful institution that a lot of us journalists knew about. They hired very cutting-edge people from industry and whatnot to look at how technology is going to change America. And Newt Gingrich thought it was a waste of money, and they killed it, which was really too bad, because at that point, Congress was getting more informed about these things. Well, and since that time, uh, the pace of technology and change, particularly where artificial intelligence is concerned, has only accelerated. How many times over? Yes. So that was not a very... Uh, not a very smart decision. There's a few members of Congress, uh, Senator Warner of Virginia, who's very hip to this. Uh, there are a couple of representatives from Congress, uh, Representative Kahana, who's on top of it, um, uh, Representative Hurd, a Republican from Texas, who's on top of it because he used to work for the CIA. So there are people in Congress, individuals who know about this. Uh, they're trying to keep their colleagues informed, and we're trying to keep them informed, too. Well, it seems a little odd to say that um, government might have to be involved might have to regulate because honestly this is a national security issue is it not maybe uppermost a, a national security issue the pentagon uh, just is setting up right now an artificial intelligence center which will coordinate the various uh, research efforts it's very clear that the pentagon will will be using this kind of technology for example uh, they've already developed a program that analyzes hours and hours and hours of video to see anomalies, to see differences. So if they're watching a house in Afghanistan that they think a prominent uh, Taliban member is in that house that they may want to kill, they will set a drone on that and watch video for hours and hours and hours. And then an artificial intelligence program, an algorithm basically, will look at all that, uh, scan it for anything unusual that happens, and then they'll funnel that information to a drone pilot who may act or not act depending on what that information tells him. Hmm. Act or not act based on what a computer says. Uh, yeah. The Pentagon has just come out with some guidelines saying that there will always be a human in charge of any decision-making process that may result from information gathered by artificial intelligence. Well, that's comforting. That's so comforting. <laughs> yeah, who that person is is yes, another question. And, and how high are they? Are they a general? Are they the president? Are they a corporal? Yeah. Yeah. Well, fascinating questions that yeah. policymakers have to be involved that in. That have to be involved in. And, and this is another reason we did the newsletter is that Congress has fewer experts than it used to. Um, you can cite the case of John McCain. John McCain is a military expert. He really knows the Pentagon backwards and forwards because he served for a lot of years, right. and he's also very big on oversight. Okay, if you do something stupid, I'm going to tell you that it's stupid, and I'm going to try to stop you from doing it. There's not many of those left anymore, and uh, the Congress doesn't get as much done. It doesn't take its oversight role as seriously as it used to, and that's a worrisome trend for us as journalists and for Americans, I think. Well, sure, that's, uh, presumably though, they could staff up with people who do know. That is happening, yes. That is happening slowly, but it is happening. Yeah, yes. okay. There is actually a blockchain caucus uh, in Congress. <laughs> <laughs> See, now that's what I'm talking about. Yes. If you had said that to me 10 years ago, I would say, what? 
What does that mean? Exactly. So there's a blockchain caucus that looks at this uh, distributive ledger technology. That's what blockchain is. It it puts information in a lot of different places so people can have access to it. Uh, There is a blockchain caucus. We tried to interview the two co-chairs of the caucus, and they said, well, we're not really in in the place to be interviewed about it yet, although they formed it. <laughs> so they've got the club. They're just not sure what it's doing. They're not sure doing. what it's going to do. That's yeah, right. okay. Yeah. Well, and actually, there's several progress. parts of the government, the uh, financial regulators, the commodities regulators, the SEC, who are looking at cryptocurrencies and blockchain very intently because it can be useful, and yet they want to get their hands around it. So AI, in particular, is one of these subjects that has fascinated uh, science fiction writers, mostly the ones that want to tell a dystopian story mm-hmm. about the future. You are clearly somebody who's spending time now getting your head around this technology and what it actually means. Mm-hmm. What do you think? I mean, are we headed to that place where um, machines are sentient? The way writers want to um, say is possible? Or do you think that it's still that we're still light years away from there. I think we're light years away from there, personally. Uh, For example, autonomous cars, which is something I know a fair amount about. Um, And you had the recent incident of an Uber practice car killing a pedestrian in Arizona. That's a long way from being realizable technology, much further than the companies are telling you, in my opinion. I have a friend at Duke who's a real expert in this. She used to be a former Navy pilot, and that's how I know her. Um, The part that autonomous cars cannot get is the vision thing. And the vision thing is the most important input in in car driving. I race cars on the weekends, so um, steering, braking, acceleration, those are the big three, but really the biggest one is vision. And you need to have your eyes up and looking everywhere to be a safe driver, a safe race driver. I mean, that's the first thing you yeah. teach a 15-year-old when they're learning to drive. Exactly. Keep the, your eyes open. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head up and your eyes open. And the technology of cameras and, and the interface with cameras and computers is still not very good at seeing everything and, and having full situational awareness. It's just not very good yet. Yeah. Uh, companies don't want to tell you that, but that's really the reality of it. It's really hard to account for every scenario. And yet human beings come pretty close. I mean, we're, we do. We, we yeah, get our, good at that. We get. Our brain is very flexible and very adaptable, and it can learn things pretty quickly. So the idea that is passed around in a lot of futurist circles that AI really is a massive upgrade on the human brain, processing speed perhaps, but not necessarily in functionality. In functionality. I have not seen that yet. I mean, yes, there'll be more smarter and smarter algorithms that will that can sift through huge amounts of data and make sense of it. That will go forward rapidly. That could, you know, some people say, well, that could mean a lot of unemployment in the future because a lot of basic kind of data work will be done by these master algorithms. It'll be a good tool for that on very recognizable data sets, things that are pretty easy to monitor, you know, maybe oil prices or whatnot. But, but for something like driving or where there's a lot of human interaction with the machine, I think that's a ways off. Or something like deciding whether somebody is an enemy. Uh, yeah, and that's where government regulation may want to come in. I, I don't know that we want to surrender to machines the decision of when to take a life. I don't think that's a very good idea. I can tell you right now, I definitely do not want to <laughs> You have your own experience of that, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you mentioned the possibility of unemployment. Even with the technology as it exists right now today, there's a lot of pressure we're seeing retail outlets that are not staffed by anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, Amazon floating these uh, 
trial balloons where you just walk in and you know you've got the app on your phone or whatever and you take something off the shelf and the machine knows it and you walk out and it debits your card yeah uh, that's not futuristic that's, that's today. today no um on the on the subject of social trends and socioeconomic impacts of these developments what are your thoughts probably there will be disruption and and displacement i think that that's happened in the journalism industry. The internet has made us wonderfully accessible and and uh, searchable, but it's also reduced the number of journalists in total working in this country. So, and that may not be a good thing, honestly. So we have tremendous access to less well-vetted information. information. Yes, I think that's true. I think the variety of information gets less and limited. Mm-hmm. So, it's a little scary, honestly. Well, certainly from an information flow point of view, but it's scary for the guy who's whose job is getting automated, and he's already on the ropes because the economy is just not all that strong. Where do we go from here? What are the possibilities? I mean, and and some of these companies talk about rollout on a very short timeline. They're developing these technologies. I mean, even when you take a car in, all they do now is plug your kind of interface into a machine that says, oh, here's our diagnostic code. And it's not always right. No, uh, an experienced mechanic can say that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but you know, what are, are we going to get to the level where we don't have experienced mechanics who don't understand how to take things apart and understand that, that what the computer is telling you might be wrong? So I worry about this. It's in every aspect of our life now. Just how many you know? There's an algorithm that takes a lot of data about you and sends it into a machine, and they decide which ads to to throw at you. That's already artificial intelligence. There's a lot of it out there already that we don't think of it. Yeah, but it really is that. Well, uh, leaving aside the issue of whether those machines can actually function properly, let's say they do and they eliminate whole classes of jobs. What do those people do? And here's really the question behind the question. Do you think the idea of a universal basic income could gain traction in that environment? That's a great question. Um, It might indeed gain more traction in that environment if, if the pace of change is so rapid that so many people are being displaced so quickly and they can't get a new job because those new jobs aren't quite there yet because there'll be new jobs writing algorithms or whatnot, but most people writing algorithms have math PhDs, you know, so not everybody can have a math PhD. So I think there there very well could be a lot of displacement. I think that idea might actually get more traction. Yeah, and that idea being everybody gets a certain amount of money just for being a citizen. Yeah. And then after that, it's up to you to go and innovate and, and figure out how you do it. I mean, people forget that uh, George McGovern proposed that in 1972 when he was running for president. I didn't even know that. It, it didn't get very far, and then Nixon used it to portray him as an absolute, you know, fuzzy-haired radical. Yeah, the worst. But he proposed type it in 1972. Possible. Yeah. Well, you know, the, there are more and more people now talking in those terms as a way to at least transition. Yeah, I think it's going to be a very disruptive period. I don't think we can even understand all the parameters, except that there may be a bottom line that a lot of people are displaced from, from the work they've been doing for a long time.
Well, I want to shift gears because sure. that's the work you're doing now. You've done a lot of different things in the journalism world, including covering county commissioners and, yep. and town aldermen and all of those uh, <laughs> sort of uh, meat and potatoes yes. things. Even sewer commission I covered. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that begs so many uh, snarky comments, but I'm yes. on the radio, so I, I have to be careful. Um, but there was one job in particular that I want to ask you about. Because a lot of journalists are in uh, risky and difficult environments. You know, I talk to people who've been in Gaza and they've been in Afghanistan and taken fire. You were in a situation where you took a lot of fire of a different kind as the ombudsman of the Washington Post. And just to bring everybody up to speed, what that meant was that you were standing between the editorial staff of the Washington Post, between the publishers and the writers and the decision makers and the public in a day and age when that relationship has probably never been more troubled. It was a great job. I loved every second of it, but we were constantly under fire. Uh, I had an assistant who helped me sift through the 400 emails a day we would get, uh, and I would decide uh, which issues are more important to tackle than others. And um, I had full independence. I could write what I want. I could decide what I want. Uh, it was an ironclad two-year contract that I can do what I want. Basically, I had a Sunday column that I published and a daily blog. I was the first to run a daily blog. And we tackled issues from plagiarism to liberal bias, conservative bias, to the changing face of journalism, because this was from 2011 to 2013. Um, and I was under fire from both sides. I got it from readers all day. <laughs> That's and what I'm talking when about. I, when I went to talk to reporters and their editors, I got it from them right back. And uh, it was a juggling act. It was a, uh, an exercise in judgment. You had to make a lot of judgment calls. Uh, I helped guide some of the ethics discussions in the newsroom. And uh, it was hard. I actually, at one point, I used to always take my phone calls and try to talk to people because you it's good to have a conversation with people, not just do email. Mm -hmm. And I picked up the phone one day and there was a voicemail. And that one that came up was just the shot of gunfire. Boom, 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 boom. It was like, and that happened twice. Oh. <laughs> well, considering recent events, that's a yeah. frightening It was kind of a frightening thing. thing. And I turned that, I saved the recording and turned it over to the Washington Post lawyers. But uh, yeah, I mean, it gave me a good sense of why people are angry at the media. But some people see, see us as crucial to going forward. There's a lot of voices out there that don't trust the media. They've been told not to trust the media. And uh, I always try to talk to them and talk them off the ledge and say, hey, we're just real people. We send our kids to school. We, we try every day, all day to get the facts right. And 98% of the time, the facts are right. And often people don't like the facts, but that's what they are. Well, so I'm sure that the answer to the question, why are people so angry at the media? You've laid out some of that. Did you form any sort of overarching conclusion in the neighborhood of a trend that could be addressed? I think because of the internet and we get information from so many different directions, people did not know who to trust. They may be looking at opinion journalism. They may be looking at Fox News. They may be looking at some really conservative blog or really liberal blog. And it doesn't say labeled in a bold headline that this is opinion very often. And people don't know who to trust. That was the biggest overarching thing that people said to me is, I don't know who to trust. And I tried to, to tell them, well, I think you can trust the Washington Post. And here's why I think you can trust the Washington Post. Here's the fact checking that people do. Here's the standard before we publish anything. And um, often that was enough reassurance. 
Uh, and I also think there's a great frustration out there uh, by readers of all kinds of journalism that the government isn't quite working for them. And I think that actually translates into frustration with journalists as well. Hmm, because they expect you to be able to do something about that. Yeah, they expect us to be able to do something about it. And all we can really do is take us where the stories lead and try to publish as much truth and as close to the truth as we can get. Well, like with any relationship, once trust is eroded, it's really difficult to get it back. What do you think the way forward is? It's very hard in a broad sense to know exactly what to do about it. I think most journalists come back and say, well, if we just do our jobs and get the facts out there, over time, the truth will win out. There's some truth to that, but there's part of me that says, we should get a bunch of money together, a large chunk of money, and do an ad campaign that teaches people how to recognize the truth and mm -hmm. teaches people about what journalists really do mm -hmm. and how they do it. Uh, there was a recent documentary about the New York Times that was actually pretty good about showing the painstaking detail and the time they take before they publish a story. And, you know, the, there are big uh, wealthy donors out there, and I think the press ought to get together, start a really smart Madison Avenue campaign and said, this is what the press does, this is how we do it, and this is why it's important. I don't think we should go down, lying down. That's a great idea. Uh, newspapers are storytellers, but perhaps they're not very good at telling their own story. And we do get a little arrogant because... You know, we're, we're talking to your mayor all day long or your city council members. You're not doing that for right. the most part. And we're yeah. talking to them all day long and looking at all the things that they write and all the reports that they draw up. And we do know a fair amount about what's going on. And uh, uh, But sometimes I think we get a little arrogant because we know a lot about what's going on. Well, and maybe we fail to um, take pains to hear what it is that we are saying through the perspective of somebody who isn't sitting in those meetings and who, who doesn't know those personalities. Yes. Yeah, I think, I think that the press is not as good as it used to be about telling stories of people in everyday life or in hard times. You know, how are you coping? How are you, where's your income coming from? How many jobs are you holding? And oh. what do you think about the world? I don't think we do as much of that as we used to, that kind of storytelling. And I, I think we need to do more of that, actually. I agree. Yeah. Well, so there you are. You're taking fire from both sides. Yes. There's probably never a day that you can feel that you actually won a battle. Yeah. Yet you said you loved every minute of it. Why? I loved it because I felt in my column and in my blog and in talking to editors and reporters in the newsroom. I was right in the middle of the newsroom. Um, I was doing some service. I was, I was translating journalism to readers, and I was translating readers to journalists. And I think that was a very good thing to do. Reporters would come to me when they were frustrated about certain things or certain editors, and I would look into it. And that often led to some changes that I didn't always write about, but they were good changes. Uh, and I would get input from readers who told me, things that really turned into great stories that I would push onto the newsroom. But people felt about the Washington Post they weren't listening enough. You know, the editors weren't out in the community giving speeches anymore. They don't do that. They don't have time anymore. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of outreach from newspapers. They're not out in the community interacting with people as much as they should. Well, that brings up an interesting question because when I think of the role of ombudsman, I think of this channel from reader to editor. But you're suggesting it, it worked the other way, too, that there were reporters coming to you with concerns. What kinds of things were they saying to you? 
reporters would come to me and say, that story wasn't ripe yet. That should not have gone yet. We weren't ready with that story yet. But sometimes they were pushed by editors to get it out there. Or they would tell me about reporters who were sloppy and why I was getting complaints about that particular reporter and that maybe the editors ought to take a look at that and they weren't. So hmm. things like that would come to me. I had my own sources in the newsroom. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so you were kind of a, a spy master in some ways. A, a little bit. I had people come to me to tell me things that were wrong internally who were working there. Yeah. Uh, and those often ended up to be things I could do something about, actually. Hmm. I could go talk to the publisher. I could go talk to the executive editor because I had that privilege and that job. Does the Washington Post still maintain that position? No, they eliminated the position uh, after I held it. <laughs> is anyone else playing that role at the publication? No. And is that a trend that you're seeing elsewhere? Yes, there are very few uh, newspaper or journalistic ombudsmen left in the United States. That used to be there were hundreds, and now there's probably less than a dozen. What does that mean to you? Uh, it means that uh, accountability of journalists is less. It means that uh, the, the critique from the newspapers is that in a world of the internet where we get 5,000 comments on a story, that's plenty enough criticism. Why do we need an in-house uh, critic that we pay to do this? Well, the difference is, of course, is that when you are in-house, you can talk to people in the newsroom uh, mm -hmm. and get the score about what's going on. and. Usually you're a veteran and you can have some judgment about whether this was a smart story to do or not. And did the reporter go the extra mile? Mm -hmm. um, and you can tell readers that, hey, I've done this before. I know what's going on here. And I think this particular story you can really trust. And here's why I think you can trust it. Uh, that sort of insidery thing is a very good uh, it's good for the paper because it's a little bit of a safety valve for them. I mean, in a cynical way, I mean, gee whiz. I mean, as the ombudsman, I took heat off the Washington Post very often because I could write a column saying, hey, I've looked at this and this was a great story. But also I would put heat on them because I said, you know, this is plagiarism and yeah. you need to do something about it. <laughs> well, yeah, that, back in my military days, we would have called you a pop-up target. <laughs> yes, I was that. <laughs> I was yeah. that. And that's, I can see the value of that. Yeah. Uh, well, so at a moment when you've already identified a lack of trust as a real problem, eliminating one of the vehicles through which trust can be rebuilt, that's disturbing. It is very disturbing. And it's interesting that in the rest of the world, ombudsmen are growing in number. And that, I think, tells you something. It tells you about the squeezing in profits in newspapers because it's much harder to make a profit now. Sure. It speaks about our sensitivity to criticism. Uh, and it and it speaks about a little bit about the public trust, I think. Hmm. Well, Patrick, looking forward, what are the big trends? And I want to ask you for the, the scary trend. Tell us what you see on the horizon. But please also give us a positive trend. Yeah. The positive trend is that there are still lots of really smart young people going into the field of journalism, really. Uh, I sometimes look at them and go, are you sure? <laughs> I tell them, you're not going to make a lot of money. You're going to be under a lot of pressure and you have no job security. Are you sure you want to do this? And there's still lots of people who say, absolutely. Uh, so that warms my heart and I see a lot. We, we employ a lot of young journalists at CQ Roll Call and, and I worked uh, at a, a smaller local newspaper in Frederick County, Maryland for two years. Great young journalists. Um, I worry about technology overtaking everything. I'm not a Luddite, I believe in modern technology, but I worry, like even in education, I know a lot about education. I often think that they see technology as the answers to all kinds of instruction where 
where I think just good instruction is really what's important. Uh, I don't think every tool you have in the classroom that's made by Apple is necessarily makes education better. And I worry that we are such a technologically focused society that we're not looking at more human or even humane solutions to things. We're looking for a tech solution for everything. And that is a little depressing, I find. Well, yeah, that's the nature of this dystopian vision that sci-fi writers have been giving us for so long, is that we've lost the humane because we've given it to machines. Right, right. Patrick, thanks for joining us. Great conversation. Great, happy to be here. Think Radio is a production of Alan Wardus Media. To contact Alan, visit alanwardusmedia.com. The show's producer is Issa Forrest. Original music by Issa Forrest. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another great conversation on Think Radio.